This election is critical, and I know politicians get up and say that every three years, but this time it really is critical because we're spending the equivalent of the next 20 years worth of discretionary budgets at once in one parliament. And so the decisions that we're making are an order of magnitude greater, or several orders of magnitude greater than those that a government normally does. Yoda. Hello, welcome to Dave Tells Us About Wellington Central, Episode 2. Today I'm talking to Green co-leader James Shaw, and straight off the bat I asked him, why should we be voting for the Greens? Obviously that's because um, of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Uh, and I agree with that. If we weren't injecting this amount of capital into the economy, we would be in the depths of the deepest and broadest recession in all of uh, history. Um, uh, but the question is, you know, there were a number of crises that were starting to make themselves felt before the pandemic got to our shores, namely the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and the crisis of deepening poverty. And we can actually solve these all at once. Um, and so. What we're saying is that we need to put every dollar of that stimulus to work, resolving the long-term challenges facing New Zealand. Otherwise, our children will end up paying twice, once to pay back the debt from the pandemic and another to pay for the crises that they inherit from us because we haven't dealt with them. On the flip side, if we do do them, you kind of get two for the price of one, right? We get to get ourselves through this crisis by injecting this money into the economy and keeping people in their jobs and creating new industries and all of that kind of stuff, and you resolve those long-term challenges at the same time. That is why our billboards say, think ahead. So there needs to be at least one party in Parliament that whilst the government is navigating its way through the short term, has got its eye on the long term and saying, actually, we need to be resolving those long-term challenges. Except X uh, slogan is change your future doesn't say which way, which is telling. Uh, New Zealand First says back your future. Uh, National says your future, your economy. So you're not unique in say, being the ones to say, think ahead. But I would argue that none of those parties are saying that we need to put that stimulus to work on the long-term challenges. All they're saying is your future, your future, your future, whether it's back to the future, change your future from whatever your future is going to be to some other future that might also be in a parallel universe. I think ACT wants to bring back feudalism. What, where it's your count that votes? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Zing. That wasn't really a Wellington Central stump speech, though, was it? That was a national stump speech. No, that was a, it's actually a very Wellington Central stump speech because Wellington Central uh, is a, a place where people do generally ask foreign policy questions and questions about the official cash rate and, you know, uh, things like that. Um, it's, you know, there are local issues that come up, but actually my experience over, what am I into, my fourth election here in Wellington Central is is that the particular nature of this electorate means that, you know, people are, f- are kind of focused more on nationwide issues and they understand that a lot of those local issues that people often ask about are actually council issues rather than central government issues. On the council, who do you think is a better mayor of Wellington, Andy Foster or Mittens the Cat? <laughs> uh, I think Mittens has got a greater following. Yeah. I mean, I think they both drink out of the toilet, though, so I think that's, that's the thing that they have in common. That's pretty harsh. 
Have you? Can you disprove that Andy Foster drinks out of the toilet? Well, I was talking about mittens. <laughs> All right. A lot of people accuse you of being a National Party plant. Are you? No. Okay. Cool. When I worked for you, and full disclaimer, I was the head of communications and policy for the Green Party, I told you that I hated high-fiving people, but that I would never leave them hanging if they ever went for one with me. And you exploited this and often made me high-five you, and one time you made me high-five you and then you moonwalked out of the office. Why do you mistreat your staff like that? (laughs) Uh, Look, it's only you. Okay. No, that's fair. Sorry. <laughs> All right. No, I'll allow that. That is fair and justified, and a lot of people would agree with that stance. My wife does the same. She put always. She knows I hate high fives. High fives should be reserved for sporting capability, which yeah. I don't have. You leave it. You you leave yourself wide open, particularly with that thing of saying that you'd never leave someone hanging. So it's like your nice guy status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's like your it's it's like the superhero with the the fatal flaw. It's a, it's a shit fatal flaw. Um, okay, why are you in the Green Party? Well, in 1990, uh, in my last year of high school, which was also an election year, there was an election debate uh, at the Wellington High School Library uh, with a Labour candidate, a National candidate, and a Green Party candidate. Um, and was that the, Stephen Rainbow? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was a guy called Gary Rees, who was the Green Party candidate for the electorate of Island Bay, which no longer exists. Uh, and um, Gary talked about uh, kind of things that I was worried about, like how are we going to, uh, you know, get through a, a world where you've got more people uh, living on the planet and more mouths to feed in a declining resource base and um, all of that. Uh, and the other people were talking about things like, I don't know, tax rates and the official cash rate and things like that, which didn't really concern a 17-year-old or however old I was, 16, 17-year-old. Um, and so at the end of the debate, I went up and I said to Gary, how can I help? And I ended up volunteering on, on that campaign. Uh, and ultimately when I um, decided, so I you know, spent a couple of years very involved with the Greens and then went to university and got interested in other things and then left the country. And then I decided uh, in 2005 that I was going to come home and run for parliament and was thinking about, you know, like I'd historically been a Green and I wanted to kind of essentially confirm that choice. And ultimately to me it was about values, like what are the things that each of the political parties care about. And I am in a real hurry on climate change and the Green Party was the only party that prioritised climate change above, you know, at the top of the list. So... For me, it wasn't a hard choice. On climate change, do you think there's a conspiracy against people caring about it? Because we had the the uh, kids marching, which happened to fall on the same day that of the Christchurch terrorist attack, and so that got no attention. And then uh, this year we had COVID, and it's like as a species we can't deal with two existential crises at the same time so climate change has been put in the we'll get back to you bin uh and so there never seems to be a time where climate change has its moment in the sun mm. yes I see what you did there thank you i i well i mean first of all i don't really believe in conspiracy theories because i think humans can't hold hold it together you know um but Uh, I know it may feel like that. I think humans are quite well set up genetically to deal with 
major short-term crises, right? The thing that's right in front of our face. Um, and so you can see that response in our COVID response, right? Like it's like, crikey, this is a major threat to our health and well-being, um, to our livelihoods and to uh, our lives. So let's do some utterly extraordinary things like close the border and send everyone home for a month and all that kind of thing. Whereas climate change is a uh, insidious, slow-moving crisis, and actually humans are very poorly designed to set up with a response that is as distributed over both geography and time as climate change is. And I think, I mean, you know, if you look at our history over the last 30 or 40 years that we've known about climate change, you can see that the human race has not dealt with it at all. Something like half of all carbon dioxide that the human race has ever burned and put into the atmosphere has been burned since 1990, which was the year that we came together and said as a, as a species, hey, we really need to deal with this. And that's a pretty you know, grim indictment yeah. on our responsive capability. So <clears throat> a lot of people bandy around the fact that, what is it, 50% of all emissions or something are done by 70-odd companies around the world and that uh, current economic models, capitalism, incentivize polluting because they make it profitable. Uh, in fact, you even alluded to this in your maiden speech. You said that if people can maximise profits or reduce costs by polluting the environment, they'll do so because the market incentivizes that behaviour. So do you want to fix the market or destroy capitalism? <laughs> That was the binary options I, I drew from your maiden speech. <laughs> well, you mean read the rest of the maiden speech where I went on to say that the market isn't sentient, right? Yeah. That there are things that it cannot do. Yes. Uh, and I think that the magical thinking of, you know, ACT and National is that they think that the market is capable of doing everything, and it cannot. By its design, I mean, it's a distributed system, you know, um, and, and it's adaptable, but it, it adapts to conditions. It doesn't lead them. And on climate change, we need to lead, you know. So, uh, so my, um, the way that I work is I think there is a future economy, uh, a stable state economy, which really looks utterly different than the one that we've, we've got today. But that's not going to happen today. And so there's a transition that's got to take place over many years. And I sort of see my job as starting that transition um, or you know, being one of the people who's involved in starting that, starting that transition. And part of that is by laying down conditions that push the market in a, in a very different direction from the one that it's going in at the moment. And then over time, and this will probably be after I'm dead and gone, uh, but over time uh, there will be, an, I think, an inevitability um, and, and that it will transform into a cleaner, greener, circular economy. All right, so destroy capitalism slowly. <laughs> That's that was what I took from I that. I think of I think of it more like jujitsu. You're gonna have to elaborate on that. Well, so in in jujitsu, what you do is you work with the energy that's coming toward you, right? So someone yeah reaches out to punch you, you grab them by the wrist, you actually pull them more towards you. Yeah, you twist their uh, wrist while you're doing it, and then they end up on their bones of their ass. Do you do jujitsu? No, but I've seen people do jujitsu. Did I? Am I right in saying that you helped Mark Thomas out during his 1996 campaign for Wellington Central? Yeah, I actually worked for him. He was my boss at the Electricity Corporation of New Zealand the year that he was running. How come you're not in campaign? Uh, well, I'm. Were you like a phone banker? No, no. 
no, I sort of, well, so Mark's a personal friend of mine, um, and so I was kind of helping him out on the side and working for him at the same time, and the lines were a little bit blurry <laughs> about what was what. Um, but I was I, I'm not in campaign because I didn't want to be in campaign. Um, great documentary though. It's uh, the so I when I went to university, I, John Johansson taught us, and it always felt like. With classes with John, it felt like five minutes before class, he'd looked at his watch and gone, fuck, I've got a class to teach. Uh, and then, so we watched a lot of movies and stuff, and we watched Campaign. And that scene in the car when Mark's got his giant car phone and he's yeah. just found out that Bulger's fucked him is just heartbreaking. It is. It's also a remarkable piece of movie history. Yeah. You know, it is... Ju- it, I. I mean, I remember, I think I've watched that scene half a dozen times, you know, and because I know, I do know Mark well, and, and you know, that kind of, mm-hmm, uh-huh, mm-hmm, I see, mm-hmm, uh-huh, wanker. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, yeah, it, like, it, that's got to be the pivotal moment of, yeah. of both that documentary, but also, of course, the actual campaign. Yeah. And that, that was, it was astonishing, it was remarkable. So, I mentioned Stephen Rambo before. Uh, it's noted that you volunteered, I read somewhere, for Stephen Rainbow's campaign. Yeah, on the, on the 1990 Wellington Central campaign. Yeah, and so he then went on to join the National Party. So that's two National Party people that you've helped out in campaigns. Why do you love the National Party so much, <laughs> and why do you want to marry it? When <laughs> Wait, I like the way that you kind of read that out in a sort of a monotone yeah. dead voice well, you know, that's how I feel about marrying the National Party I feel it would be well, a dead marriage is this the point when I mentioned that you of course worked for Bill English as an intern yeah that's fine I also want to marry the National but that's just one You've done. I've got two here well Stephen Rainbow wasn't in the National Party when I volunteered for him he was in the Green Party yeah but you know he's clearly got had National Party proclivities well you'd have to talk to him about that I was captivated by him. I think he was the first politician I was ever aware of, and I was only aware of him because his surname was Rainbow. He look. He, he was he born that was that his. I don't know. I don't know. What I, a no, that, that that is actually his surname, and and um, I, I and I I don't know the history here, but I understand. So, I, yeah. No, you'd have to talk to him about it. I'd be misrepresenting him if I if I speculated. That's all right. Uh, in again, going back to your maiden speech, you cited Margaret Thatcher in an almost favourable light. A lot of people have highlighted that fact. Is that because she fucked the coal mines and you'd like to kill a coal too? <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. No, what I so what I said in that maiden speech was that uh, Margaret Thatcher was um, really the first major world leader to call attention to climate change. And she, because she was a chemist, no, I know. Right? she was trained as a chemist, right? So she got up and she said, look, you cannot change the chemical composition of the atmosphere without consequences. That is just a fact. And the reason I called attention to that is because on the other side of the house, you've got all these National Party people who think that Margaret Thatcher is, you know, the next... Something. Messiah. Yeah. And uh, they follow her economic prescriptions to the T, but they ignore her scientific proclamations. And my point was, look, if you think that this woman is so special, why don't you follow her on the science of climate change? Why do you only focus on, you know, her kind of economic 
prescriptions. Okay. So it's not the metaphorical killing of coal. No, I was just no, not at all. But my my point. I mean, I, you should just go with noted. My I do want to. I do yeah, want. Like, I do want to get rid of coal. <laughs> I'm in a real hurry to get rid of coal. But my my point there was to say to the other side of the house, you should listen to this woman more often, right? You actually forget about her economic prescriptions. Listen to her on the science because she wasn't wrong about that. You said that you'd never go into coalition with Simon Bridges' National Party because you said, and I quote, I would never empower someone with as little personal integrity as Simon Bridges to become Prime Minister. Do you think that Judith Collins has personal integrity? I don't have that much experience of it, but uh, I have a... There are things that she says and does that really make my skin crawl. So, no? Well, I, look, the, we're not about to go into coalition with the National Party, no matter who's leading it. Okay. That's, just, you, like, if that's where your question is going. No, not at all. Because my, my next one was just, does Jacinda Ardern have personal integrity? Yes, she does. Does Winston Peters have personal integrity? I don't know him well enough to be able to say so. You don't know the leader of the party that you've been a confidence and supply member of their coalition government? Yeah, so one of the peculiarities of the last three years um, was that there was a great deal of distance maintained between Winston personally and us, and so we did generally dealt with you know, people around Winston rather than win with Winston directly. Do they have personal integrity? Some of them do, yeah. yeah. So some of them don't? There are people who I know in New Zealand First who I've got a lot of time for. Um, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay, so I'm not going to get an answer out of you explicitly. You're not going to get the answer you want out no, of No, but, but I think we can we can all hear what you're putting down. Um, when you first stood for council in Wellington in 1992, you lost to Andy Foster. <laughs> now that he and Mittens are co-mayors of Wellington and you're the co-leader of the Greens, do you ever think... Nya, 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 nya. <laughs> what I find extraordinary about Andy is that, uh, you know, he got elected to council in 1992 and he's been there ever since. Yeah. Ran for New Zealand first at the 2017 election yeah. against you, but you beat him. Yeah. Well, the, the thing I found astonishing about all of that was when he got up at the Meet the Candidates nights, he would get up and talk about things that were directly contradictory to New Zealand First policy. Like it was they just. They don't have policy. Well, there were things that they had, positions that they had espoused, let me put it that way. And, and, and Andy just, I mean, I, yeah, it was an odd experience. As part of this process, I've invited the other two people I'm interviewing to give questions to ask of the MPs. This is Nicola Willis's question. In 2019, you questioned whether the government deserved to be re-elected if it didn't introduce a capital gains tax. Uh, I actually remember it differently. You didn't question, you actually just straight out said, do you think the Greens deserve to be part of a government if you don't deliver your proposed wealth tax? Yes. I mean, it, but it depends on everything else that we do deliver, right? So you've got to look at uh, what your track record is in the round across a whole series of domains. Uh, and the capital gains tax was not our only policy. It was, I think, a, a, a low light of, of the last three years was that you know Winston killed that off and, and then the Prime Minister killed it off for her entire premiership. 
and especially now that COVID-19, you know, you can see that all of that stimulus money that we're pumping into the economy is flowing through wage and salary earners and into the pockets of asset owners. So there's huge capital gains occurring right now at a time when wages are going down. So I think that we have to, have to have some form of tax reform that balances the equation out between wage earners on the one hand and asset owners on the other. Yeah, I'm very pleased to hear you say that because when Labor announced its new top tax level at 180, I was like, this is still putting the burden on the salaried worker rather than the asset hoarder. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I have no problem with the idea of progressive income taxes, but the, the real imbalance yeah. in our society is between earners and owners. I mean, that's the that's the true inequality. And there's so much capital accumulation going on that even a fairly modest uh, um, capital gains tax or asset tax would actually um, help the country to pay back all the debt that it's running up that's inflating those assets in the first, pri- in the first place. So... To me, it's just not credible to allow the current system to continue for much longer. I gave Nicola Willis a bonus question because I enjoyed it. She said, will you help a sister out and just release the letter? <laughs> uh, she's obsessed. So you said before that the capital gains tax not going through was, a, was one of the lowlights. Was also giving $11.7 million to the Green School a lowlight? Yes, of course. But you knew the answer to that already. Yeah, but I also have to ask it, right? Like, it would be corrupt of me not to ask one of the highest profile things that you've done in the last wee while. What I, a t- couple of things on that, my thoughts. Not this, I'm not even the subject of a podcast, but here I am. So, I was interested in this idea that somehow you had held to ransom like $11 billion worth of projects uh, unless this green school got money. I was like, that is ascribing way more power to a confidence and supply agreement associate finance minister than I feel is actually the case. Mm. Is that is that kind of accurate? Yes, but then you know how this place works. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. And then the other thing is I actually think, in retrospect, that whole clusterfuck has helped out the Green Party because, yes, it was terrible. Yeah, you guys fucked up. But then you guys got way more media coverage than you tend to. Uh, and everybody learned that you are opposed to the Green School. And so in the end, it's been a net benefit because your polling numbers have gone up and they've gone up more and more. So I think you should consider funding more private Green Schools and then apologising for it. Seems to work out well for you. I think perhaps there's a hole in your political analysis there. Are you polling better now than you were before the Green School? Yes, but there's a difference. But there's but causation and correlation are not the same thing. Yes, they are. You know that. Prove it. (laughs) All right, um, so you talked about New Zealand First stopping the capital gains tax. We got told, the public got told a lot mm-hmm. that New Zealand First was this, this handbrake on progressive things like the capital gains tax, uh, your fee bait, light rail, that was really filled wiped. Um, if that's true, right, and New Zealand First was the reason those things didn't get across the line, and thus Labour was always on the, the progressive side of those arguments, what's the point of the Greens? Well, you know, Labour will continue to hug the centre, right? Because their strategy is they're trying to, you know, have half the country vote for them. And that seems to be working out pretty well for them. Our job, I think, is to pull them to go further and faster than their instincts normally would. Um, 
And there are some things that we bring a level of focus to that when you're a major political party like the Labour Party and there's, you know, 70 different priorities to pay attention to, I think the Greens are able to come at some things like climate change with a laser-like focus and make more progress than a Labour minister would in the same portfolio. What would be the best thing to do about climate change? Well, it's a bit like the housing crisis. There's no one lever. You have to pull every lever, um, and and you have to keep pulling them as well and adjusting uh, adjusting the settings. But the other day, as part of our transport policy, uh, we said that we would phase out the uh, import of fossil fuel cars by 2030 to match the United Kingdom. Because in the UK, uh, and actually California, but in the UK, after, after 20... Well, they're currently debating the exact date, but it looks like it's going to be 2030. You won't be allowed to buy an internal combustion engine vehicle in the United Kingdom. And what that means is that there will be 70 million second-hand, right-hand drive internal combustion engine cars looking for a place to go. Oof. And so we, uh, who like to buy second-hand, right-hand drive cars, risk becoming a dumping ground for all of those, uh, all of those vehicles, which will make it absolutely impossible for us to do anything about climate change. And transport is the one sector where our emissions have been growing and growing relentlessly. Every other sector, our emissions are high, but they've actually been stable for quite a long time. Um, and we've got to make them come down. So, you know, it's a mixed view. But, but in transport, they just keep going up and up and up and up and up. So you cannot do anything about New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions without dealing with vehicle emissions. So if there was one thing uh, that I could get done that would make the biggest difference, it would be that. It's pretty embarrassing, eh, when the Tories are more progressive on climate change than we are. The British Tories? Yes. Yes, as opposed to the New Zealand Tories? Yes. Yes. I don't really call, they're not really Tories here. Um, all right, Grant's question. Do, it's a yes, no question. Dumb. Do you support the concept of a just transition in regions and sectors beyond what has already been done? Yes. Yeah, like who's going to say no to that? Terrible. Ter he also knows better than to ask yes and no questions. But no, but I mean, absolutely, I do. I mean, and and obviously, we've got live conversations going on in Taranaki, and there's one that's starting to, um, uh, you know, get into gear in Southland as well around the what is the post Ty Southland. Oh, if there is a post Ty. Well, it's. It feels a bit like Winston, doesn't it? No, like I it might just look, hang around forever. Yeah, look the. Rio Tinto are one of the most successful companies in Australia. Uh, and they have won basically every major battle that they have fought uh, over TY in the last 10 years, right? So they got a $300 million handout from Bill English, mm -hmm. who told them not to come back. They uh, won the transmission pricing review, um, which they'd been fighting for 10 years. Um, they got a really good deal on electricity from Meridian and Contact, and they still could not make it work. You know, they just can't make that plant work economically. Um, and so then the question really becomes, how do you, what, what does the transition look like? And they gave it a very short time period, 18 months, actually, in reality, uh, which is not enough for us to do things like, you know, get the transmission lines in so that that power can be used in other parts of the economy, like at Fonterra's milk drying units, uh, or to set up other industries that can utilise some of the skills that are employed at TY, uh, or to use the electricity. And, you know, we've talked about 
the potential for hydrogen production down there, which basically takes electricity plus water, both of which are in great mm. supply at Manapuri, uh, and, um, uh, and data centres, which require a lot of electricity and cold air, again, uh, in quite good supply in Southland. Um, but all of that's going to take a bit of time. And so I think the idea of, a, of trying to you know, spread that transition out, but the trick will be to do it in a way that doesn't just subsidise one of the most successful companies in Australia. The trick is like, how do we do it in a way where that support goes to the workers and the families um, and, and Southland rather than essentially um, get siphoned through uh, the, Rio, um, the aluminium smelter to Rio Tinto. Did you see what they did with the uh, ancient Aboriginal drawings? Yes. They're proper dicks. Um, in the last election, when Matidia resigned, you were the sole co-leader, so I guess the leader, and a lot of people credited you with dragging the Greens over the 5% line. This time around, you were the fuck-up that nearly caused the Greens, I mean TBD, to go under. How does it feel to have been on both sides of that? Unpleasant. Both times? Why can't you just do a normal election campaign? Well, you know, the it's a pretty horrendous experience being the cause of it, yeah. I have to say. And so, you know, the recent experience in many ways was harder than um, than the than for me personally um, than twenty seventeen. Although obviously twenty seventeen was incredibly tough on Met personally and you know her family and so on. Um, and so, for me in twenty seventeen, it was about okay you know you get up every morning and you go what do, what do we need to do today to kind of you know keep the thing going and and eventually we got out the other side um the thing recently with the green school of course is that it was fairly limited in time uh and um you, you know it was sort of partially inflated because of the the fact that we were in that weird parliamentary overtime because of the outbreak in auckland uh, and the press gallery didn't have really much else to cover, so it a acquired a, a sort of a firestorm um, sort of mm. level of level of noise. But we also knew that, you know, if I just tried to, you know, maintain some integrity and get up and apologise for it, that actually, you know, that would get through. And the one thing that people have said is, I've now been allowed to get around the country now that the outbreak's kind of under control. When I'm talking to people about it, they say that they, many of them said that they've never seen a politician apologise for getting it wrong before, which to me is actually quite a sad indictment yeah. of, of our profession. Um, but, you know, that seems to be the thing that people remember. Yeah, Judith Collins said you should resign. Um, but then when Paul Goldsmith fucked up their budget to the tune of, I think we're up to eight or ten billion, she just kind of laughs off the mistakes. Do you think that's a consistent approach? No, but I, I mean, I wouldn't ever accuse her of consistency. Do you... I've often thought that politics and sport are a bit shit for people to work in because they're the two industries, and media as well, where the general public will often scream and shout for somebody to lose their livelihood. How, how can we fix that? Can we fix that? Well, well, I'm. When it comes to politics, I think that the threat of losing your livelihood is a is, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I mean, you need to know uh, 
and you need to always be aware that we are here at the pleasure of the electorate, you know, the, the citizens. Um, and so in an ideal world, you maintain your behaviour. And I know that that induces short-termism and it induces you know, extraordinary levels of caution, particularly at times when actually you need to be prepared to make some bold decisions. Uh, so there are flaws to it as well, um, but ultimately I think that it means that the system works better than it would otherwise. You know, I mean, you look at countries where people don't have the threat of losing their livelihoods, and generally what that means is other people lose theirs. Or lives. Yes. Um, okay, dragging it back to Wellington, what changes do you think Wellington needs to undergo? There are three top priorities for the city right now. Yeah. Um, they are housing, transport, and our three waters infrastructure. Um, and all of them are in dire, dire straits. Uh, and central government can help with all three, but also it's going to require the councils to make some um, pretty bold decisions as well. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing, eh, when sewerage starts bursting out onto the main roads of our CBD. It is a very embarrassing and a major health risk. And, and you know, it, it, it clearly there is something at fault in the design of how that works. Because in Wellington and a number of other places around the country, councils have spent the depreciation money that they get on those pipes on other things. Uh, and well, it's not a it sexy spend, is it? Because we can't see it. No, it's not. But, it, but if you're getting depreciation on you know, infrastructure, then that should go on upgrading that infrastructure. Yeah. That's the point of depreciation, is to be able to say, well, you've got an asset replacement scheme, you know, in place and so on and so forth, and they didn't. Um, and so clearly something needs to give. Is the Labour Party the Greens' competition or the Greens' friends? Um, I Well, I think that we're co-opetition, right? So, so that is the worst and I bet you've said that in many times as well. Actually, no, I haven't. Um, uh, it's co-opetition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we. I think if you look at the last three years, we've worked really well together in partnership. Um, and you know, there are people who will vote green sometimes and Labour other times. And our job in the Green Party is to make sure that our vote is as large as possible, so that we can. Um, get as much of our program through in the next term of government as possible and the Labour Party will approach it in exactly the same way but when but it's not like we don't have this sort of intense rivalry um, we have in times in the past um, but actually I think that where we're at now is we've got a, it's a really constructive relationship and we both get up and we lay out our stalls uh, and then you know people will make their minds up and I think we're both pretty relaxed about that so Nicola Willis is pretty obsessed with building a lot of roads into Wellington. Um, you guys not big fans of roads. Do you accept that we need roads? Well, we've got roads. Yes, of course we do. Do you accept that we need more roads? Um, the thing that I don't accept is that the vast majority of our transport budget should go into seven urban highways, which is what the Roads and National Significance program was, where they stripped actually the roading budget, particularly from rural New Zealand, and went for these gargantuan mega projects that had very low benefit cost ratios. Um, and so what we're saying is actually the only way to decongest our cities and actually make the roads usable 
uh, for people who do need to use the roads is to have other forms of transport available for people to use. And in historically, what we've done with our transport planning is we've started with the question, what is the most efficient and effective way to move cars around? Well, the most efficient way to move a car around is on a road. Like, they don't move very well on rail or on cycle paths, so you build roads. But if you start with the question, what is the most efficient and effective way to move people and freight around, you land in a very different place. And you say, uh, actually, the most efficient way to move people around is on mass transit, you know, whether that's heavy rail at the regional level or light rail within our cities uh, or buses, um, that's where you start. Um, and, you know, obviously you can fit a lot more bicycles into a, you know, the sort of area of space that you can fit a single car. So if you start with those forms of transport, uh, then you take an enormous amount of pressure off our roading network. Um, and the problem that I've got with the way that the National Party are approaching the Let's Get Wellington Moving program is that they're starting with all the roading projects. Um, and what we're saying is, no, you start with the mass transit, you move people around, you know, you, you get those systems in place, and then you say, okay, good, now that people are actually able to get around faster and quicker, whether it's by bike or on, um, on, a, on a light rail uh, network, what do we need in terms of roading? And, and it's a fundamentally different approach, but it leads to less congested cities. And as you mentioned, it's better for the climate if we have fewer cars on the road. Yes. So although, although once we've flipped the fleet to electrics, you still have a congestion problem yes. that you need to deal with. Yes. So that so there are two things that are related but distinct that you need to think through. One is the effect on the climate and the other is the effect on the city and on congestion. And you uh, can solve one without solving the other. I mean, yeah, I mean, my original question was, do you concede that we will need more roads? And you had a lovely speech that didn't answer the question. So do you, is there a need for more roads? Well, there may well be, but what I'm saying is that if you build the light rail and you build the cycle paths and so on, then you will know what okay. roads you need. But you won't know until you've done those things, because at the moment, the only option that you have got is a road. Are electric cars... Do you own an electric car? Yeah, well, it's a you know, company car, yeah. Are they the great panacea because they still require electricity. And while we're quite good on our electricity, uh, a lot of other places Countries throughout are. the world aren't. Yeah, so um, now I, I cannot remember the source of this, right? But I remember reading an article a while ago that I think it was in the UK, where at the time uh, they still had an enormous amount of their electricity provided by coal-fired mm -hmm. power plants. Of course, most of that's gone mm. now. But at the time, they said that even there, um, a, the emissions associated with generating the electricity to go into a battery electric car were lower than the emissions from a fossil fueled car, because of, essentially because of the efficiency with which you could convert coal to electricity mm -hmm. versus you know, petroleum uh, um, in, the, in, in the car. So even in those, in those cases, okay. yeah. But... Uh, you know, the manufacturing of electric vehicles still involves emissions as well. And so, you know, I, I think that we, we shouldn't just say, look, it's a one-to-one -one swap where if you just take out every fossil fueled vehicle and replace it with an electric vehicle, then you're out of the woods. You're not. You have to go right up the su supply chain, right to where they're being man manufactured. You've got to think about their disposal um, and 
you know, those are pretty thorny questions in and of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, what's the thing that is required in electric vehicles that Bolivia has a lot of? Lithium. It, it is the lithium for the yes. batteries. Yes, and then cobalt, which comes from Africa, and both of those have got horrendous issues with their supply chains. What's the best thing about Wellington? You know, somebody asked me this question the other day, uh, and I landed on, after much consideration, I actually landed on the people of Wellington. Uh, my other options being, you know, the this amazing kind of green hill uh, sort of amphitheatre that we've got. I mean, I, just, I think it is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Um, and, you know, I have had the privilege of travelling, so I, I, I don't say that flippantly. But one of the things I really love about Wellington is that it is a, you know, it is a very cosmopolitan town, um, but also it's really chill, so it's not up itself. Um, and... Uh, um, you know, so you get this uh, quite relaxed, vibrant uh, sort of culture where at the same time people are engaged in, you know, big questions about the state of the world and what's going on and, and so on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it, yeah, and, and then you've got our kind of zone you know like i know everyone comes back to cuba street and you know the cafe culture and all of that kind of thing but it is a it is a really great place to live because you just feel like you're part of the crowd and uh and it's a pretty cool crowd what's the worst thing about wellington um i think that i said it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world until you look really closely at some of the architecture you know, like we went through this spate in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s uh, of knocking down these, um, uh, you know, beautiful old uh, Georgian buildings and putting some really horrendous What's uh, the buildings. worst? Uh, the single worst building in Wellington. You better say the one I have in mind. It's the post office. Yes. Right? Yeah. The, one, the NZ Post building down by the train station. Yeah. Is that not just the pit? It is. It is. It's actually, so it is a terrible piece of art, uh, brutalist architecture, um, which would be quite comfortably at home in sort of, you know, the Soviet Union, uh, back when there was a Soviet Union. Um, and, and I think the thing that makes it so horrendous is that it's so big and so prominent. There's actually, I think, even worse pieces of architecture, but they're kind of... You know, masked by that monstrosity yeah, yeah, and right. I see that they're doing work yeah. on it now and I'm just like just don't well, just I, tear it down I don't that I you know it's funny but they've been doing work on that for ever yeah and yeah. I'm not, just not quite sure what they're doing maybe they're just like this building is so goddamn ugly that scaffolding is actually an improvement and so they just leave it up who knows I hate it so much yeah and oh I just yeah I've hated it forever yeah um okay so that's all the questions I have I think um, do you have like one final thing you want to throw out into the ether that may or may not get edited out? What would be the thing that you would like me to say right now? Oh, look, you can say whatever you like. So Nicola Willis, uh, she said a long speech about sort of tacitly accepting that Nationals probably not going to win the election and then with the final plea that if you are going to give Nicola one vote, make it the party vote, because that's the one that counts. Um, so she was, it was kind of like a, I don't know, like an, a politician's plea. But you could, this is just, okay, so, okay. 
has there ever been a question that you've desperately wanted to answer that you've never been asked? That is a really good question. I know, thank you. Yeah, you know what's one of the things that occupies my mind a lot at the moment is the way that people are thinking about how they use their vote. And it almost never comes up, uh, which is kind of odd, right? But we know that there's this large group of people who um, really want to reward Jacinda for her leadership of the country, particularly through COVID-19, but also for Cardi and the mosque shootings and, and so on. Um, and that is completely understandable because she has done an outstanding job. They also want the Greens to be both back in Parliament and part of the next government because they don't want, whilst they want Jacinda to be the Prime Minister, they don't want Labour to kind of govern alone and they want you know, to make sure that they have to talk to somebody uh, else. Uh, and so they're kind of waiting to see how the Greens do and they feel if the Greens need our vote, then I'll give it to them and if they don't, then I'll give it to Labour. Um, and so the thing that... Uh, I wish people would ask me, how should I vote? Because <laughs> what I would say to people who are in that space, and I know that there's a lot of people out there who are in that space, is that the most powerful thing that you can do is give your party vote to the Green Party because you add the Green votes to the Red votes and that's how you form a parliamentary majority, right? And not only that, um, that is the way to ensure that Jacinda Ardern will stay as the Prime Minister and that she will have somebody around the cabinet table that she needs to talk to as well. Thank you, James, for that helpful little lesson on MMP. Episode 3 with the incumbent and finance minister Grant Robertson from Labour is also out now.